This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m. Here on Rally Check Radio, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde, and we're continuing our interview of the party leaders of what I'm now dubbing, I've gone through a few iterations, the real politicians and the real political parties rather than the sock puppets that we keep recycling in our parliament and getting the same dismal leadership and results. And it's a great honour and a privilege uh, to introduce this morning Sue Gray from the Freedoms New Zealand Party. You'll recall Ali Cook. We've had her on, gosh, many times because she's doing such a lot. And she's a member and a candidate with uh, Freedom New Zealand Freedoms New Zealand Party. And Sue Gray is the co-leader with Brian Tamaki. Good morning, Sue. Good morning, Rodney. And also thank you so much for inviting me on. It's awesome to be here. Well, you're a interesting character because I don't know you, but I feel as I do, because you have been an activist on many causes sort of forever. What what makes you an activist? What makes you a protester? What makes you stand out and stand up? Actually, because I care a lot. I care a lot about New Zealand. I care a lot about having a future for our kids, for, for grandkids. And I'm really sad about the direction things are going where power is being taken away from people and communities and it's being centralised and globalised, and a lot of the decisions that are being made are just not good for us. So I sort of a lot of people care. I don't mean to be rude, but a lot of people care, but they don't do anything. Like I sort of care, but I don't do much. But you're actually out there beating the drum. What gives you that extra push? Is it something in your upbringing? Is it the need to be? What is it? What? Yeah, good question. I mean, I've always been um full of energy and I've always been really determined and I've always had to fight for everything that I've got you know I didn't come from a wealthy background or anything I was the first one in my family that went to university and I guess I've just learned that if you want something no excuses you've just got to get up and do it well these days of course to put your head above the parapet and question the government and the dominant narrative, or shall we say even the world order, is to not be criticised or abused, but to almost be decapitated. (laughs) And the media, rather than reporting different views, has become executioner. Yeah, that's a pretty fair summary. And along with the government, working hand in hand to destroy people like yourself who are questioning government and suggesting alternative courses of action, you don't get reported any longer. You just get abuse. It's amazing to me to watch. It's scary to me. Yeah, it, it is because, you know, I come from a background of of science, law, 
connected with people all around New Zealand and all around the world. Like I spend a lot of time listening to people and and tracking down different views on things because I always like to have a really good understanding of how everything fits together and, and what's driving things and who's calling the shots, who's paying the money and, and just why things are happening the way they are. And I think I do a huge amount of research and I try to be as not well independent I mean I guess I'm, I'm never independent because I'm I'm standing up for the people that I believe in which is the public um but it it does never cease to amaze me how many people are willing to take fairly major pot shots at me yes um when do you think it became next level I, 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 my observation is I can remember being dead against um, the whole climate change hysteria. And I could argue the science with anyone and the data and all the rest of it, and I couldn't make any headway. And in Parliament, I was just considered kooky. And then I got labelled a climate change denier and um, didn't care for the planet. But it wasn't and then I just didn't get reported about it, but it wasn't nasty, right? Mm. No one, no one went out to deplatform me, cancel me, execute me. But all of a sudden, it seems next level, and you've been active all through that period. When did it change? Do you think? Oh, I mean, I've I've stood up against this system for a long time on lots of different issues, and it got pretty personal when I challenged the apparent bias of the former Supreme Court Judge Justice Wilson when I was oh, you settled it, Mayor. and you won, <laughs> and we won, yeah. The um, the the, I, the the Supreme Court Judge, just for everyone know, had to resign for correct me if I'm wrong not declaring an interest. Yeah, for um, he mentioned that he had racing interests with the lawyer for the wool board, but he forgot to mention that he was indirectly indebted. So on his salary of 430000 a year or whatever it was, he couldn't keep up with his share of the cost. So he was borrowing money um, and the lawyer was basically paying as he went. So effectively he owed money so the second time we went to the supreme court they agreed that there was apparent bias and he should have recused himself so we didn't have a fair hearing he was in debt to the lawyer on the other side of the case and didn't recuse himself who was a partner in his horse racing stud oh my goodness me yeah that was bill wilson well he wasn't and actually he wasn't exactly indebted but the lawyer and the Start had guaranteed the judge's borrowings. Okay, got it. Yeah, got it. Well, that's such an obvious conflict and need to recuse yourself that you know the man in the clap and bus or the pub would see that in a heartbeat. Well, we thought that, and we actually did the test at supermarket. You know, when you're queuing up at the supermarket <laughs> and you strike up a conversation, <laughs> what do you think? Do you think it's okay or not? And nobody thought it was okay, except the Supreme Court the first time we went there. Uh, the second time they agreed it wasn't okay too. 
So that's when you noticed it get personal. Yeah, well, at the time that happened, I'd been working for myself, but I started working part-time for the government for the Department of Conservation. And so after my client filed back in the Supreme Court, I got a call from Al Morrison, who was the Director General of Conservation, who basically said, uh, we think you're conflicted, as in me. And I'm going, really? So that all got pretty nasty. I ended up getting fired by Doc and taking a personal grievance and eventually getting getting a good settlement with them. But um, it was a pretty brutal process. Why did Al Morrison suggest you had a conflict of interest? Do you know? Yeah, because the Solicitor General had tapped him on the shoulder and said, get her off the case. Get her off what case? Off the Supreme Court challenge. They wanted Oh, me. really? Yeah, yeah. There's a long history to all this. They wanted Funny me. enough, I think I can recall you coming to see me when I was an MP about this case. Yeah, that could be right, yeah. And I knew... I knew the gentleman who you were representing on Saxmere. I've forgotten his name, but he was Peter Radford. That's right, and he had a yep. great case. Yep. Against the wall board, he was a great entrepreneur, and you yep. were doing great work. So you were challenging this obvious need for a judge to have recused himself. And in sitting in judgment where he was conflicted or at least apparently conflicted, if you know what I mean, that's the rule. And you were representing your client, you were taking that case, and then you were working for the Department of Conservation. And because of that, they said you had a conflict of interest working for a doc. Oh, my goodness. Yep, they said the crown is indivisible, the courts are indivisible, and it. Oh. I had a conflict, which which I'd always. So you were in effect taking Al Morrison to court, as well, the way he. I mean, I was always taught at law school that there's supposed to be a separation of powers between the legislature, yes. the executive, and the judiciary. But all of a sudden, Doc decided, or the Solicitor General decided, that there wasn't. It was a messy case, you know, it was really messy because I was communicating directly with the Prime Minister's office and the Attorney General's office before we went to the Supreme Court explaining the issue because we'd won in the High Court and then we'd had this terrible hearing in the Court of Appeal and explaining that we didn't believe we'd had a fair hearing and and they wouldn't do anything. So the only thing left to us was to go back to the Supreme Court and it was really unusual you know we went to the Supreme Court and said look we think that one of your judges who heard the case before he got promoted to the Supreme Court um, shouldn't have heard the case and we want a rehearing so it was an extraordinary unprecedented case yes big time and he had to step down he did. Um, he had to step down eventually, but he, they, they, they covered him for quite a while. He continued to sit on the Supreme Court even after that, and he continued to hear more cases with the same lawyer. But I found out that eventually the Crown paid off all of those parties, or at least some of them, from those cases. They never publicly said that. But I, I met one of the parties or one of the representatives of parties later on. Isn't it funny that in popular culture, we love 
the little guy standing up against City Hall. And in modern times, we particularly love the woman who's standing up against big corporations and big government and fighting for the little guy. And the media, the legacy media, present themselves as being the champion for the citizens. And yet the whole system closed around Sue Gray. Yeah. Well, actually, with Saxmere, the media wasn't so bad. So that no. was about 2008. Yeah. And in those days, the, the I mean, we were on front page stories in the Herald and, and the Dominion Post, and the press had a big story. I mean, there was even speculation whether it would bring down the entire Supreme Court. So the one that was the difference back then. The government hammered me. But the media were still pretty much on the side of the little guy in the, okay. in the start of the social media was definitely on the side of the little guy. And we had things like the NBR who followed it really closely in those days. They mm -hmm. were pretty much doing a story a day. There was so much happening. Um, but what's definitely changed over the last few years, and especially with COVID, is the media seems to have been bought off. And they are now standing squarely with the government instead of standing with the people. And it's, I can't believe it's just the fund, the 50 million, as bad as it was that the media took it. Um, I don't think it can be just that. I just think that they see their role as being on board with, quote, the science, quote, true information, and they equate that with what government tells them. Yeah, well, it's definitely not good science what they use. No, um, it's shocking science. I mean, I, I after I well after I studied science and then I studied health protection. I used to work. My first job was working for the government, the Department of Health, doing contact tracing, and I can still remember the training session we had with the medical officer of health from Wellington, Dr. Ellie Gardner, talking about pandemics and what you should do if there's a um a sudden pandemic or outbreak of disease and you know everyone said oh get everybody home safely and she said no 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 you contain them you contain them on site until you know what you're dealing with the sick people the sick people not and, the healthy people not the well well at the very start you contain them all because you don't know what you're dealing mm. with i mean we actually that's the funny thing with COVID. at the start we said that new zealand should close its borders Mm. And and not let people come back from overseas who might have COVID until we knew what we were dealing with. And once we realised that actually it was basically another version of the flu and it could be treated with a whole range of drugs and early treatments, then we then we decided that the actually the government's response was a gross overreaction. But actually at the start, we were more cautious than the government. Yeah. Who's the we that you're deferring to there? Oh, the outdoors party. I mean, we, okay. we had a um a, our board, we we had an international airline pilot who, you know, he was flying to Singapore and Malaysia. And over there you couldn't go anywhere without testing mm. and, and real restrictions. And then he'd arrive back in New Zealand and just sort of wander through customs and be free to do whatever he wanted to do. And he was absolutely mm. horrified. So your your political party, the Outdoor New Zealand Party, of which you're the leader, 
um, was formulating a position. And your initial position was, okay, for the, out of an abundance of caution, let's just stop people coming in until we know what we're dealing with. Yes. Yeah, that was way back in probably March 2020. Okay. Um, And the government didn't. And then you're saying once we realized that it was maybe a bad flu, it's then that they massively overreacted the other way. They overreacted the other way. And by then we had more than enough information to say, well, no, let's just treat it like a bad flu. So you were never on board after that once, by March 2020, when the New Zealand started to go crazy. At that point, you had parted company with the government narrative. We had. I remember sitting in my office, looking out the window at the shallow water where I used to go paddleboarding to do a bit of thinking and thinking, what is this law or supposed law that stops me from going out getting sunshine, fresh air and a bit of mental health and exercise? And getting into the research and realizing that what they were saying to us was different than what the law said. Yes. And How are we ever going to be able to explain that crazy time to our grandchildren? I think there will be some good books. There's already a few movies, but yeah, sure. I mean, on the bright side, it's a great time of history to be alive. It's a great time of history to be alive. I have never been so challenged, so fundamentally, I like the word, discombobulated in the sense that I was all at sea. I am to this day. Do you know, I used to love writing and writing policy prescriptions and here's a problem and here's what the mad government's doing, here's what we should do. Do you know I can't write now because... I feel as though I can't even diagnose the problem that we're confronting because that COVID response so rocked my soul. Yeah. Because I no one could explain it to me. No one could reason it through. And it was like you were standing on a sinking ship and everyone just running around in a mad panic full of fear, clutching onto straws that they thought would save them like a, you know, crazy little totem. And you have to do this. And I wasn't trying to be difficult. I was just trying to understand because I could see that this was a big upheaval, like no other upheaval. Mm. And people would just get angry with me. You know, this is on a personal level. This isn't publicly. I... I didn't do, I was out of public life. It was so crazy. Yeah, it was really crazy. And it was really crazy because we weren't even allowed to talk about it. We weren't allowed to ask questions. Like people no. get so angry if you even tried to question something. And yet I was a bit like you. It was like there was a, a platform of marshmallow that we were standing yeah. on trying to sort of understand everything. And the more you looked into it, the more you sort of sunk down and there was nothing behind it. Um, and any other normal policy, I don't know, put GST up to 15 cents or cut GST or add a wealth tax 
or, you know, all the normal things that a government does. You know, you have a debate and people put that story up and explain why and other people criticize it and then they'll go and do something stupid probably anyway, but you can debate it. This was the biggest policy ever implemented outside of declaring war on another country, um, ever couldn't be discussed. Well, I think I figured out why it couldn't be discussed. Oh, please. Yeah. Well, basically, there was never any foundation for it. And it was an invention from, I mean, I've done, I try and do one official information act request a day just to mm-hmm. get information. And, you know, you don't always get good answers, but occasionally you do. And what's really clear, like it, it got me thinking when I went to a conference on, on COVID last year in Vienna and People said, well, hang on, you've got a Minister of COVID response in New Zealand. Why have you got a Minister of COVID response? And I sort of thought originally because maybe it was a really big job. But actually, it was because the Ministry of Health and particularly the regulator MedSafe wouldn't give the information that the Prime Minister wanted. So what she did is she set up the Minister of COVID response under the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet so that they could control the narrative. So on the one hand, you had MedSafe saying we're concerned about the safety and effectiveness, but then you had the Unite Against COVID platform, which we never had any people's names, but it was run by the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet and by the Minister of COVID Response, which is now the Prime Minister. They were saying it was safe and effective. And I've just got an official information act request back from the Department of Prime Ministers saying that they had no responsibility for assessing the um, health issues about COVID. Like it's all insane. But it's, it's the insane. only way it makes sense is there were basically two lines within government and they didn't talk to each other. And it looks like they didn't talk to each other by design because the regulator wasn't saying what the Prime Minister wanted. Do you think Jacinda Ardern was extremely capable and clever or stupid? Uh, <laughs> I think she was more like the sort of head prefect and she just oh. wanted to be the goody-goody for Bill Gates and her international friends. That's my best call. And yes. she was basically prepared to throw our country under a bus to promote her own career. That's well, That's the only explanation I can think of. I think that too. And, man, has she done a great job because, you know, she'll go on to have a glittering life. Um, I mean, in her soul, it must be twisted. Um, but it was brilliant propaganda like we've never seen before, and an ability to look down the camera and tell complete porkies, and then to destroy eminent people who had very good questions with literally just a flick of the finger, and to have the media eating out of your hand and hanging on every word. Oh, my goodness. And then to sink the country you know, beneath the water and resign 
oh, you know, I can't give it 100% anymore. And he'd often go and have a great life in the UN, shutting down free speech now for the whole world. Yeah. It's extraordinary. It's scary stuff. It's, now, it's scary uh, how people couldn't see through it. Like, apparently, very few people could see through it, or if they could, they weren't prepared to say anything because maybe they were afraid or whatever. What do you, why do you think that is? Why do you think, look, for my part, I pretty much, if asked, I'd always tell the truth. And back then I had some radio slots I did until I got no longer asked. And I got asked about the COVID and I went nuts. And I had a whole lot of people email me saying how, um, what a fresh breath it was to have someone say it was nuts. But, I didn't, I was out of public life and had no wish to return, and so I kept my counsel, and so on everything. But what I don't understand is I had very good friends. I had people who I would have thought had exactly my political principles and values. I had my own political party, the ACT Party, completely fall through for it mm. and to regard me as a bad person who's stupid and who never once would inquire to find out why I might disagree with them. But why is it that there were you, me, the protesters that we met, from across the political spectrum, from across the socioeconomic spectrum, all races, all religions, coming together and saying, we don't buy this. What was it? What what was it in your view that made us not buy it? I think it was courage. I think New Zealand's mm. got this huge problem with what I call the golf club syndrome. And nobody, nobody wants to be embarrassed at the golf club. Mm. Nobody wants to be the first to question something in case their friends laugh at them. And it's a massive problem, you know. Hey, I don't care if I'm wrong about something. It's much better that we talk about it. And if I'm wrong and I'll listen to what you say and I might learn something and I might change my mind. But this idea that you can't say anything in case you might be wrong puts us in a, in a huge Whole. I mean, it, it makes it really difficult to work through issues. What well, we did, in Nelson. We um, we right from the very start of COVID, we used to meet at the supermarket at every Saturday at noon with our protest T-shirts and and whatever. And we'd we had a few banners that were like two meters long, so we could hold them in the queue while we were waiting at the door. You know how you had to queue up outside the supermarket. And for the first couple of weeks, people used to give a massive circle around us like we were these mad people. And because we were protesting in the queue, instead of standing with our eyes down in the queue, we might somehow be dangerous. And so then we had a bit of a think about that. So we came up with this game called What's Your Line? And we, and we would get people to draw on the ground what was the line when they would stand up and question the government. Oh, good one. 
and how far would it have to go? And interestingly, a lot of people wrote compulsory vaccination. And so this was way back in in March 2020. Well, you couldn't even contemplate that it would ever come to that. Well, we, some of us were concerned because we'd seen a whole lot of different things that have been written and speculated, but it certainly was, was a possibility, not a probability mm. in those days. Can I just jump while we're having this thing too? We've had the wonderful Ali Cook on, and we know she's a candidate for you and your party, and we're going to come to all of that. But she told the story. And I watched the video of Damien O'Connor when you presented the results of your Official Information Act. And poor Ali, quite rightly and quite understand- understandably, reacted. Hmm. Can you, in your own words, tell us what happened? Yeah, um, I can't even remember what the question was now because we've done quite a few candidates' meetings on West Coast Tasman. But Basically, I started talking about the COVID response Mm -hmm. and how the ombudsman had refused to give us the contract, but he had ordered the government to give us a summary of the process that they entered into in in the process of the contract. And so what that confirmed is what we'd all suspected, that the New Zealand contract was pretty much the same as the other international contracts that we'd seen for the Pfizer with Pfizer that clause 5.5 said that Pfizer did not warrant the safety or effectiveness of their vaccine because they had not completed long-term testing. Um, so, and, and so at the same time that Pfizer had agreed that with the government, the government was telling the people of New Zealand that it was safe and effective. And, and so, that was a complete, well, it was, they had no basis at best for saying that. You could say it was a lie because in having and saying that, they were making it up. Absolutely. Well, it was worse than that. They, they were told, another official information at request, they were told by the Ministry of Justice that they couldn't claim it prevented transmission and they couldn't justify mandates or any any pressure on people to be vaccinated unless they had really compelling evidence that it prevented infection and transmission, not just Ashley Bloomfield hoping that it did. So you you had that and this was before they came out with the safe and effective and all of that. And Ali Cook is in the audience. You're explaining this that it wasn't like now presented, oh, well, you know, we didn't know back then what we did now. No, they knew. Ali Cook's 26-year-old son, Bailey, is suffering myocarditis as a consequence of the vaccine. You explain that the government of what Damien O'Connor was a minister of and what did he, what was his reaction as you saw? He it? sort of looked down, hid behind his hand, and then smirked. And what was he smirking about? I mean, we'd have to ask him, but I imagine he was feeling guilty. I hope he was I, feeling guilty. I think that's what it was. I suggested that with Ali that it was like, it's, 
the enormity of what they did. Mm. But, and, you know, none of it was a, an, a surprise. I wrote to them in March 2021, so just after the Pfizer vaccine had been given provisional consent by MedSafe with 58 outstanding conditions about safety and effectiveness. And I wrote to them on behalf of clients asking them how they could be proposing to roll it out to everyone in New Zealand over 16 when it only had provisional consent because yes. under the Medicines Act, provisional consent meant that it could only be used for a limited number of patients. And we did that high court case. Well, this is a great case. This is a great This is a great example because I've got a lawyer on. I'm excited. Yeah. And not only a lawyer, I've got a lawyer that took the cases because I'm not clever. Right. But I knew that they couldn't know this was safe. I knew that the lockdowns had to be unlawful because I was aware of the setup of the Health Act. And I knew that the whole thinking behind it was you quarantine is about the people who are sick. Mm. And I remember saying to people, there's no way there'll be a provision in legislation that would allow you to lock everyone up. And I remember going back and checking on the health act. God, the first only time I've ever looked at a statute since I've left Parliament. And that was true. So I knew that was wrong. That was sort of obvious. Yep. I also could clearly see that it was a provisional usage. And again, I knew this just from sitting in Parliament and hearing people debate it, I'd never looked at their legislation, that that was for someone dying of cancer. They've got two weeks to live. <laughs> a drug comes along that's not been tested, and the doctor is allowed to tell you, look, this is a new drug. It's not been tested. You've got no time to live. It might work. Yep, exactly. That was the clause or the section of the legislation or the spirit of the law that they used this vaccine on every New Zealander. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah, well, that was my thinking, and that's why we went to court. My client And lost. Was... Sorry? And you lost that one, right? No, we won. We won in court. And then they changed the law within 24 hours. So they called it an emergency law change. And um, David Parker, the Attorney General, said that it was just a technical change, removing the words for the restricted treatment of a limited number of patients. I didn't realise that. I'm sorry. Yeah. Because yeah. the one, there was the civil servant, the clerk, assistant clerk of the house, who took them on the lockdown. Yep. And they had to change the law for that. Yep. Then you took them that they couldn't be using this injection under the emergency use clauses because it was only for people who are in dire need and on a limited basis, right? Yes. And you won that. We won. The judge agreed with us that um, provisional consent couldn't be used for everyone in New Zealand over 16 because that wasn't a limited number of patients. No. And they changed the law. They went, I was just on Facebook telling everybody that we'd won the case and messages started to come through to say the government had announced that they were doing an emergency law change. You think that 
the judges t- had to tip them off that it was happening, or they just it was public by the time they did the emergency? Oh, they, I mean, I, they must have been anticipating it. I mean, I'd been saying it to them since March when I wrote Yeah, it was an that. easy, it was like, you don't, you worry about the courts, but it was a clear misapplication. Oh, my goodness, you won. Yeah. And they changed it. They changed that, it. That is, that is a 180 degree change. They changed it. They told, and they did it with only one reading, with no public submissions, with no um, bill of rights report, with nothing, as far as I could tell. And those stupid opposition. Well, they made a bit of a token, feeble effort. I mean, I sent them a whole lot of information as well. Um, Nick Smith and. Uh, I think it was Chris Bishop. I oh, we sent them a whole lot of background, so they had something sensible to say, and they still didn't say very much at all. And it all just went through, and everyone was like, "Oh well, you know, COVID's so serious, we urgently need this vaccine." And yet, even before then, there'd been so much evidence that if you had a good vitamin D level, you wouldn't get sick. If you're already immune, obviously, you wouldn't get sick. There were so mm. many early treatment protocols that could get stop you getting sick, and they would never ever look at any of that. There was just this massive fear that you know we all need this experimental vaccine to save us, even though there were so many concerns about its lack of safety testing and its lack of effectiveness. It's just the most extraordinary process everywhere. You know, I still can't believe how it went through that kind of process and everyone just jumped on the bandwagon. It's interesting, isn't it, how fear makes you irrational. Which I think is what it was all about. I actually think now that a lot of what happened in 2020 was generating the fear so that people would actually get to the stage they were so scared and so fed up with COVID that they would hold out their arm and have injected into it whatever somebody told them to inject. I mean, that seems to be the modus operandi. It's just, just, just extraordinary. The um, fear is what underpins all bad behaviour, and because if you can instill fear as a political leader, you gain power um, because you become the saviour, and it's an old playbook, and Jacinda played it wonderfully but what made me suspicious is that whenever you face in a western democracy a true threat the leaders all go on to explain not to panic but what we had was a very modest threat and our leaders went on every day to tell us to panic yeah and that yeah, yeah, panic. You got to panic. You got to panic. And then the scary images, you know, TV would yeah. dish up scary images to make you panic. Um, and that's, you know, when you can smell a rat. Um, oh, oh my goodness. I hadn't realized that's just sort of set me off on a, on a, um, it's left me a bit speechless because A, that I was so misunderstanding what had happened, but B, that they were so corrupt, so disregarding of basic principles of constitutionality, legitimacy, 
And again, why? Because they could, they got caught up in it. Like, yeah. It's been a really hard time to be a lawyer. It's been so difficult when normally you can, you know, advise your clients to go to the court. But there were the first two VAX cases, pretty much the same thing happened. You know, I had the same thing with the no jab, no job case where I acted for the um, aviation security workers. And in that case, they changed at least three laws because of our court case. Well, you you've done more legislative change than most MPs. Yeah, yeah, I don't know why I want to bother with Parliament. <laughs> Sue, Sue, Sue Gray turns up with the case. They should actually change the law before you turn up, save everyone's time. Yeah, we'll be more efficient. <laughs> well, I'm trying to think. Remember there was something that Muldoon did that's famous in law circles because he changed the law over the Clutha Dam or something. And oh, he changed. He he was taken to court by Fitzgerald, the school teacher. Is it that one? Yeah. What was it about? Was it he announced that he was going to change the law, and he started doing things on the basis of a law That's that he right. hadn't yet changed? Yeah, pretty much what Jacinda did. I mean, yes. all sorts of announcements about things, and actually, there was never a law saying the things that they say. They just did it again recently. You know, they did it. Um, they Ginny Anderson, the Minister of Police, announced that there would be restrictions on convoys, and that if you had two or more vehicles in a convoy. They could seize your vehicle, um, and and um, yeah, all sorts I didn't of know this. Yeah, so that was a big. It was a big announcement, maybe a, a month or so ago. So I asked <laughs> under the Official Information Act for the Bill of Rights advice on how that could be lawful, because you know you might be going to a funeral with a couple of people in a ten people in a convoy. They can come and seize your vehicles if they think that there might have been any law that you were breaking. So when they came back to me, they said, "Oh no, 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 no! That wasn't that wasn't um, cabinet. That was just Labour Party policy." But they announced it <laughs> as, as if it was a law, and people thought that they couldn't go to Wellington for the convoy, or they'd have their vehicles seized. We're talking to Sue Gray. She's the leader of the Outdoor New Zealand Party. She's a long-term activist, standing up for citizens against what would we say? tyrannical corporations and big government and and using the law uh to do its thing in a democracy in a constitutional westminster parliamentary democracy and getting tyrannized because every time she wins they change the law so she effectively loses and she's joined together with brian tamaki uh, as to be a co-leader of the Freedoms New Zealand uh, Party, seeking your party vote. You're on Real Talk with Rodney Hyde, Rally Check Radio. Sue, it's a great pleasure to have you on. I'm learning such a lot uh, about these court cases because, as you say, why do you bother when they're just going to change the law? The Fitzgerald case was huge. And the media played it up and how rotten it was that Muldoon did this. And it's like a classic case in the law books. And it prompted Jeffrey Palmer to look down his nose and say this must never happen. And it was a constitutional outrage and everything was Fitzgerald after that, a constitutional outrage. This government that we've had, with the support of the opposition that we've had, have done that before breakfast without blinking. 
and mm. the journalists have either not reported it or reported it up as a world-saving, necessary thing to stop Nana dying. It's extraordinary change in our constitutional architecture. Yeah, it is. It's, it's a huge change. Actually, it's interesting. There was another Fitzgerald case in 2021 in the Supreme Court. It was it was also called Fitzgerald and the Queen, um, but it's actually quite a good case. And that not case the same a, school teacher. No, <laughs> no. This was a it was a it was a criminal case about the three strikes law. But they actually said some really good stuff in the Supreme Court about our constitution and the mm-hmm. principle of legality and how it's wrong to override fundamental rights and freedoms and how laws must always be interpreted to protect fundamental rights and freedoms unless there's absolutely no other way of interpreting them. But I've been arguing that in a whole range of court cases in the last couple of years since that case came out. And I tend to get a response of shock from the courts that they don't believe that there can be such a case. Um, Mm. So we've got a huge amount of education to do. Not least with our judges. Yeah, everywhere through the system, our judges, our politicians, and actually the people as well, because the public just are so badly informed about constitutional law and about their own rights and freedoms, and they they really do need to be educated, because if you don't exercise your rights, you lose them. And it's not to say that you should go around pushing people, but it's really important to know what your rights are and what responsibilities come with those rights so that we can be a better society. And lawyers are great because they can look at what the law might lean, like the example you gave where you can see a bad convoy of gang members and you say, oh, that's bad. We need a law, law to stop that. And so you rush a law through that'll stop a convoy because it's, you know, criminal intent. And then suddenly, as you say, you could be going to a funeral and the police have the power to confiscate your car because that was the law that you have passed. And yeah. we have increasingly given enormous powers across to the police to act with discretion in a way that's against our rights. And again, we saw that in COVID where we saw my favorite example was, you know, the front page of the Herald where the police drove out to PR or somewhere and pulled a guy who was out there surfing. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And you're thinking, on what oh hey, I want to be a policeman. Oh yes, what do you want to do? Oh well I want to go out there and sort of when there's a pandemic on, arrest people who go surfing on their own at the beach because they might hurt themselves and take up a bed that we need to save for all the thousands of people. I mean, how could yeah. you keep a straight face? And 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 as you say, uh, and you you the law profession and the judges, and you yourself have come under attack from the law society. Yeah, I did. I I did for some of the things published on our outdoors party political pages. They um they made preliminary findings against me. They laid charges against me, but luckily common sense prevailed um, before the disciplinary tribunal, and I successfully argued for a strikeout on the grounds that freedom of speech prevails. Like even though you're a lawyer. You're allowed freedom of speech. And of course, if you're in courts and you're acting for clients, there are consumer protection rules that apply. 
Um, but that doesn't stop you having your normal freedom of speech and political speech. I mean, how can you be a politician if you're not allowed to question government policy? Mm. Well, you've got a great track record of taking them on and winning, including the Supreme Court. Yeah, yeah, well, I have, but you wouldn't know that reading the media because I'm no, an anti-establishment no. whatever. No, I whatever. thought you were a complete loser. Um, <laughs> well, I do too when I read about myself in the I paper. I know, I know. <laughs> I used to think it was just me being sensitive, but we I had nothing like what you get now, what people get now. And I, I think our opposition were just scared to get bad media. Mm. And that's why they go along with it. They sort of got to play the media. And these little tin pot t- guys on their typewriter are sort of can ruin your political career because they choose to because you spoke out you know against mandates or you required government to follow the law um tell me about the outdoor new zealand party yeah so we started to promote the kind of kiwi great way of life and just connection with the outdoors and nature um, we we evolved into the Outdoors and Freedom Party with all the COVID issues and we had some another big group of members join up that were really interested in those sort of human rights and health issues. And then recently we became part of the Freedoms New Zealand umbrella because the public kept saying, why are there so many small parties? Why can't you all work together? So we said, okay, we'll give it a go. We had a, had a long think about it. We talked to Brian and Hannah and others quite a, quite a bit about it. And we decided that, yes, we can. Um, We can agree on key issues and we can agree to differ when we disagree on things. And that's actually okay. You know, part of part of democracy is getting different views around the table. Um, Mm. And we don't necessarily agree, but at least it's a chance to hear the views. It's a bit hard explaining it to the public sometimes. Um, So to get Sue Gray into Parliament, we need to give our party vote to the Freedoms New Zealand Party. Yes, party vote Freedoms New Zealand. We would, If we get 5%, we'll get six MPs, which would include Brian, Hannah, and Hika from, Hika Robinson from um, the vision sort of side of it, and then myself, Donna Pukiri Phillips, and Ali Cook. From Wouldn't Outdoor that be Freedom. something? We Wouldn't would have be... an awesome team. What and... would be your priority? So Yeah, for me, it's all about, um, I mean, ultimately, it's giving power back to local people, getting rid of Mm. the government tentacles and letting people just get on and run their lives without interference at every twist and turn and letting local people make local decisions for themselves. But to get to that, we need to reclaim freedom of speech. We need to make people comfortable talking about different views and just start asking all the questions that everybody's been thinking about but been too scared to ask. I mean this in a polite way, but I think you're of an age that you would go to law school and never imagine within New Zealand that free speech could be contentious. Yeah, it it is. It's shocking. I actually wrote to the Victoria University Law School when we were at the protest in Wellington, and they said, oh, this is terrible. We've had to close down the law school because of all these scary protesters. And I wrote to them and I said, hey, you guys should be down here. Come and talk to me. You can write some amazing 
investigations into what free speech and human rights are all about. You're never going to get a better example than never. this. And they wrote back and said no. Was it the I only had one day, sadly, at the protest, and outside of personal and family things, it was the greatest experience of my life. Yeah. I have never seen or imagined anything like it. And I was so pleased to be part of it because I grew up wanting to go to Woodstock or something, <laughs> you know? And I be know. that be that person that went to Woodstock and <laughs> hung out. And this was our personal Woodstock. Yep. And it absolutely. was the happiness and the joy. I'm not a hugger and I hugged everyone there. And it was I realized that you need human contact and touching. And we had been denied that. We we were being in the lockdowns and through the COVID, we were denied our basic humanity. Yeah. And so you walked into that protest village and we could be human again. It was so wonderful. People were laughing and joyful and cracking jokes. And it was a sense of freedom in the human spirit against that monolithic beehive in parliament buildings. And I looked up to that parliament in the beehive and I thought I spent 15 years there. I think I did. And uh, maybe, yeah, it was 15 years. Wow. And I don't recognize it. Yeah. Like I don't understand. I couldn't, I can't conceive of MPs, particularly opposition MPs, running, not running down, even if they had to put a hazmat suit on to talk to thousands of people. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and it's I couldn't conceive of the journalists. Again, they could put on a hazmat suit and breathing apparatus and come down and find out what was going on. As you say, law professors, law students, um, it was a, it was unique. Yeah. And it wasn't even about the vaccines. There are plenty of people there vaccinated. Um, it was about the whole charade and the whole tyranny and the whole loss of being able to question it was the most wonderful thing wasn't it it was it just it was for me it must be the most amazing thing I've done in my life I was there for about 20 of the 23 days I had to go up north for, for a you. hui that I'd organized and I was I was helping um with strategy behind the scenes I was helping um people that were arrested, giving legal advice as best as I could. I went down to the court. It was bizarre. I went down to the court a few days after one of the, that first big arrest. And I, I don't know, there were hundreds of people who had been charged. And they wouldn't let anybody in because you had to be vaccinated and have oh. a face mask on to go in. So we had this crazy system where the security man on the door of the court was handing out business cards telling people to come back on, you know, three weeks later or whatever. And and then the people were realizing that they all had different bail conditions and some were trespassed off parliament and some weren't and some had all sorts of other conditions. And so there was a bit of a discussion going on. So I ended up getting invited um, to go into the court without a mask and without a VAC certificate, to speak to the registrar and to come up with a solution to, to basically protect the security guard and to put some sort of order back in. Because it was a bit like being in Africa or somewhere doing yes. justice un under the tree outside the kind of 
building. It was just crazy stuff. Um, and anyway, we negotiated that. She wrote a letter that everybody's bail conditions were cancelled and they just had to return to court on the agreed date, but there were no bail conditions. So everybody could then go back to the protest and carry on until they were next in court. Mm. Well, my little story is I was upset I didn't get trespassed notice because everyone oh, did. Yeah. And um, because I thought, oh, God, I'd frame that, you know. <laughs> and um, it turned out I did, but they sent it to the wrong address. And then I got an email from Trevor Mallard saying that I was no longer trespassed and it had been withdrawn. And I wanted to write to him and said, here's my correct address. Please send me the notice because I want to frame it um, and show what a pillock you are. Um, But so, yeah, I got, I got, you know, how proud am I that I personally got trespassed as my little thing. Oh, well, I'm uh, jealous too because I wrote to Trevor Mallard as well and I said, I want my trespass notice too <laughs> so I can go to the High Court and challenge it. <laughs> and I said, I'm not at my home address. Please can you email it to me because I want to get into court and get this sorted out. And he well, said, oh, I'll serve one on you if and when I feel like it. And he never did. Well, I'd quite like it because I've never – have I think I might have – have I ever darkened the doors of Parliament since leaving? Like, I am a person that walks away and that's it. I don't think I've ever been back. And um, I occasionally get invited to things and I have to dream up an excuse as to why I can't come. And it would be great to be able to say, look, I'd love to come, but I'm trespassed. <laughs> I'm trespassed. <laughs> uh, look, Sue, uh, here you go, everyone. Sue Gray, well, what a what a wonderful woman. And clearly, if you want someone to stand up for your rights, no better person than Sue Gray. What a track record. And what a successful track record. And what a brave, brave woman. And my goodness, we need her in Parliament. And the way to make that happen is to give your party vote to Freedoms New Zealand. You get Ali Cook and Brian Tamaki and Hannah Tamaki. It'd be wonderful. And i got to tell, i got to, I want to repeat this to, listeners and a lot of people don't agree with me but i tell everyone that to vote for the real parties and i say they're real because they're chock-a-block filled with citizens and the existing parties by which i mean national labor the greens the act party the maori party are sock puppets They've just been there too long and they just don't talk from the heart, don't talk from citizens. They don't represent us, they represent them. That's your wasted vote because you're just going to get the same old stuff. It's no big change. And then we have these wonderful citizens like yourself and every other, I got to say, party that I've I've loved them all. They're real, right? And to put your name up, they're making a big sacrifice. And even if they don't get over the 5%, your vote is not wasted because you've registered it for what you truly believe. It's like a referendum. And you've sent a message. But if you vote for the existing parties in Parliament, what you're voting for is for a continuation of what we've got. 
up to you. It's your vote. You can spend it how you like. But don't be convinced that, oh, I can't vote for Freedoms New Zealand because my vote would be wasted. No, 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 no. That's a narrative put to you, in my humble opinion, by the legacy political parties and the legacy media. And if you want change, it's in your hands with your vote because there's plenty of great people. We've heard them on this show. Great political parties standing. And to me, they're deserving of my vote. And I think you should consider them for yours too. Because if you're upset with what we've got, it's in your hands to change it. Is that a good message, Sue? Yeah, that's awesome. Thanks, Ronnie. The other thing is I'm candidate for for the um, Outdoors and Freedom Party in West Coast, Tasman. And we've oh, great. been having a really strong campaign here up against Damien O'Connor, Maureen Pugh, you know, and I mean, Damien's totally part of the globalist agenda. He doesn't yes. like it when he's called Davos Damien. He <laughs> said, oh, but I only spent one night there. Um, and, and Maureen's fabulous, actually, but her leader won't let her say what she no. wants to say to represent the electorate. So why would anybody vote for her? So I've been asking, we've had about, I think, 11 or 12 candidates meetings up and down West Coast Tasman. I've, I've driven, I've borrowed somebody's brand new car and it's already over 7,000 kilometres because we've had wow. so many meetings. <laughs> and um, um, I've been asking at the electorate meetings, you know, is anybody happy with the current government? And pretty much every time everybody says no. And these are the meetings where Damien and everyone is sitting there next to me. And then I say, are you happy with the opposition? And everybody says no. And I say, really? well, are you ready to vote different? And they go, yes, and they all cheer. So there is a huge Good for momentum. you. Oh, well, that's exciting. And if it's a three-way race, you could come through. And I, I'm with you. I'm with you. Um, Damien O'Connor's a nice guy, but he just goes along with what he's told. Maureen Pugh seems wonderful, but she's got Chris Luxon telling her whenever she asks a decent question to go away and read a book and yep. go on some Chinese re-education camp. And then you've got Sue Gray. And, of course, Westland has a history of surprise results with Margaret Moyer in 1990 and then yeah. the great Chris Arkenvold, who I adored. Uh, them electing them, and then they've had uh, Damien, whose name is boring. Um, and nice. the whole the whole Labour Party started in blackball on the West yes. Coast. Yes, yes, but and that was a Labour Party that was men with dirt under their fingernails. Yeah, very you know, different than the current lot, that's for sure. Yeah, it's a pretty wild place. We've had some great meetings. Good you know, on Winston you. and Westport and Collingwood. Oh, and my God, I hope you win. Oh, that would – oh, look, it would so make my day to see a new party in Parliament. It would make my day to see an upset. And if ever there was an election where it was possible, it's this one, because I can't get excited about a change of government, you know. No. I just no, can't. red or it, blue, it's going it, to make very little difference. There. No, my party, um, my party, a libertarian party, agreed, well, supposedly. <laughs> agreed with me and my family being locked up yeah. for a fake disease. And I, mandatory vaccination. And mandatory vac in fact, they argued that they should go further and go door to door. <laughs> I had to have my kids trained. Because, you know, they were pri primary school age. And I said, if anyone comes at you with a bloody jab, run. 
wrist your arm off them. They know jujitsu. Get your arm out and run. <laughs> and always say your parents do not agree with this because I was scared that they'd start turning up oh. to the schools and just willy-nilly start jabbing the kids. Yeah, and, and they show all sign that they will if they can get away with it. It's the scariest thing, what what they've been doing. You know, the idea of mandatory medical treatment is terrible. And, we, terrible. you know, we've got the same issues with fluoridation and all sorts yes. of other things. But but the idea of mandatory medical treatment, when it may kill you, yes, and we know that it may because of myocarditis and Rory Nairn. It's and, been accepted. Yeah. The coroner and the pathologist has agreed it could kill you. Yeah, and and yet they're still prepared to push it under duress. And some of the DHBs have still got health, so-called health and safety mandates, which I don't understand how you can have a health and safety mandate to do something that might kill you either, but that's what they say they've got. Um, everything is just so out of kilter. And wasn't it preposterous? Because you say, oh, okay, I'm just interested. How does this work? Oh, well, what we do is... We don't give you a jab of denatured protein from a virus. What we do, it's so clever, is we give you this little strip of mRNA and it's covered in this lipo uh, nano whatever uh, and it'll travel in, in your arm to your cells and it'll enter your cells and lo and behold, it'll start making the spike protein. Huh. So this body of mine will start making spike protein, which is part of this COVID-19 virus. Yes, 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 yes. Well, won't that be? A, no, 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 no. The spike protein is completely harmless and yeah, it just stays that. in your harm and then it just disappears. And you're thinking... Why would that just stay in my arm? Why know, would it just disappear? The whole thing, when it is explained, is so preposterous. Yep. Yep. And as it's proved to be. Yep. So preposterous. Like the spike is the part of the COVID it, that causes the harm. Why would you want it multiplying for an undetermined time yeah. in an undetermined part yeah. of your body? Where it yeah. not, where it will cause inflammation and cause bleeding and cause clotting and all sorts of harm. And don't worry, if you're pregnant, you're perfectly safe for you and baby. Except, oh except God. Pfizer don't say that, but trust no. Jacinda because she knows better. God forbid. No wonder Damien O'Connor smirked or looked uncomfortable because if you've got any ounce of humanity in you and if you have any sense of understanding of what has happened it's going to be tough to live with the thought that you promoted this yeah 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 there's, there's going to be, a, I mean, a, anyone with a conscience is going to be feeling pretty bad right now. I went over to um, Europe last year once the restrictions came off. I had to go via Helsinki. It was the only place I could go via without a um, Vax pass at that stage um, and, and into Europe, into Edinburgh and then Europe. And then um, 
I went to Nuremberg to the 75th anniversary of the Nuremberg trials. Wow. And that was super interesting. And Vera Sharev, who was one of the Holocaust survivors, spoke the most incredible speech. Yes. Yes, and I and saw I that. got to meet her for breakfast um, the next morning with people from the Children's Health Defence, Mary Holland, who was their chief legal advisor, who travelled over with Vera, um, and a few other high-profile people from over there. And Vera said it was worse. She believes what's happened with COVID was worse than what happened back in Germany when she was a wee child. And her mother had lied that she was an orphan so she could be let out of the concentration camp and taken to Romania. But however bad it was then, she believes that the scale of what's happened now is worse. Tough call, but um, you accept her testimony. The Child Defence Society, is that Robert Kennedy? Yeah, yeah. Hasn't he proved amazing? Oh, incredible work. Just absolutely brilliant work. Great team of people doing such good work. Amazing, man. And he's getting cut through. Yeah. Yeah, and he's standing it's... as a candidate for the Democrats, which is actually yeah. the side that have been denying everything. So. Yeah. No, he's he's been uh, wonderful. And when you've heard, because he's standing, he's getting a platform, and I've listened to him online, um, and I've sort of got used to his voice. I can start to not be distracted by it man he speaks to the point he speaks he explains it very well and i read his book i thought his book was amazing and um it's pulled the scales from my eyes on so many things i was always suspicious of aids because um it always seemed a bit strange uh, you i hadn't realized that there's been a long pattern of um scaring us about diseases that we can't see yeah yeah, I used to read Robin Cook books when I was a, a kid, you know, all those kind of epidemic and fever and all these other books. And so I've been interested in all this a long time. But yeah. what's been amazing in the last few years is actually because we couldn't travel, we were able to talk on Zoom with a whole lot of the world experts. Yes. So, you know, talking to Del Bigtree and Brian Artis and, and yes. Tess Lowry and all sorts of people around the world that normally we wouldn't have a chance of yes. meeting. Yes. And you can join them in on a Zoom call. Sue Gray, I wish you every success for the for the campaign. I would love you to win your electorate seat. I would love you to get over the 5%. But i got to tell you, I say that to every party because, honestly, there's not one. I, I haven't got a favourite. I had Alfred Nail on and I loved him. He was great. And so I'm enjoying them all because – it's such a difference from yeah, 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 politicians where it's all programmed. Well, You're on really amazing. If if people didn't vote for the hundred and twenty that are I know. there who ignored us during lockdown, I know, and they did vote for all of the small parties, wouldn't we have an amazing turnaround? We would actually have a House of Representatives. We would. We would. You're on Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on Rally Check Radio. That was the amazing Sue Gray. Oh, my goodness. I enjoy uh, talking to her, and I could listen to her uh, forever because she's had such an amazing experience of our legal system and going up against it. Why? Just to seek justice and to have the law applied 
fairly and equitably. Uh, you can get Sue Gray into Parliament, give your party vote to Freedoms New Zealand and vote for her if you're lucky enough to be in. Uh, the Westland electorate has got a, another name. Sue, what's the name for that electorate Yeah, West now? Coast Tasman. So it's West a Coast. massive electorate, the whole yeah. West Coast and all of Tasman and Golden. Oh, I'm, I remember Chris Arkenvold telling me how far you drive in a week going yeah. to clinics. Ah, that little car of yours will get a lot of kilometres when you're the MP. Thank you for joining us. Remember, send us a text 2057. Uh, email me at inbox at radleycheck.radio. How blessed are we in this world to have so many good people standing? This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m.